Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Seeking Story podcast. Today, I'm here with uh, two good friends, Adam, who you heard recently in the October Sky episode, and Dom, who I've had many conversations about movies and soundtracks and all things therein uh, many times over the years. Um, so today, we're going to be discussing um, a good old film, as we say, um, the 1989 Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Batman film. Um, Dom, do you want to give us a, a brief rundown of what to expect if you have either had the fortune or misfortune of not seeing it? Sure, sure. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's uh, this is a lot of fun. And um, so with with the Tim Burton Batman movie, we have basically an introduction to the Batman character. You have decades of an absence from the big screen, from the like the nineteen sixties Adam West Batman shows to now you have an actual full feature theater release movie, and uh, so it. Basically starts out and it just gets you right in the thick of it. You're introduced to Gotham City as it is, and you see you see this Batman character as he's beginning to be just discovered by the citizens of Gotham. So it seems like he's very early on in his Batman career. Um, Bruce Wayne has literally just undertaken and, and gone under the cowl uh, for not very long before this. Mm-hmm. And, and then it just, as the movie progresses, you see him as he's continuing to fight crime, he ends up creating more villains. Namely, you have Jack Nicholson become his arch rival, the Joker. Right. And then so then you have the the rest of the movie is him basically trying to foil the Joker's plans to overtake the 200th Gotham anniversary parade and really basically create all kinds of terror. Mm-hmm. Mixed in it, you got a little bit of romance. They introduce you to a whole lot, a lot of characters that fans of the comic book would be very familiar with you get some you get some cameos from some other popular oh, yeah. science fiction movies you know with Billy D Williams kind of making an entrance there as as when sadly enough was not brought back for the second movie of the sequel right. of that, which, is, which is funny. Because at the time, he was only six years removed from Return of the Jedi, so he was still very much in that, that fandom era. Right. Like, you so know, this is a major science, like I said, science fiction hero. Yeah, so you have, you have, you're introduced to, you know, Lando Dent, at this point, <laughs> so, and then, and, and, and doesn't quite, doesn't quite pan through. But, I mean, right. the, the whole story is really just about, uh, Michael Keaton's character of Bruce Wayne trying to discover the balance of being Batman and also being Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. finding someone who he cares about, but then also trying to protect the city. And you're introduced a little bit to an origin story for why that happens, and you right. come to find out that Tim Burton, or the screenwriter, had introduced certain elements to the story to compel it a little bit further that may have been a little bit different from what the original source content of the comics have created, but it still makes for a very compelling story from start to finish. It it really does, and um, one thing that you said, Dom, in particular, that really stuck out was the fact that, you know, this is Batman discovering who he is, and same with Bruce Wayne, but also same for the audience, too. I mean, you forget the fact that, you know, a lot of people who saw that movie watched the 60s Batman or, you know, grew up on the comics or anything like that, but the thing I found interesting, I, I rewatched it again last night, and I kept a, an eye on the uh, the time code of the movie. And you never actually meet Bruce Wayne until twenty plus minutes into the movie, which is so odd for a Batman you know film. You look at like something like Batman Begins, where you don't see Batman until what halfway through. But this movie, it's the reverse. You don't see Bruce Wayne until much later on. And if you didn't know, you know, the lore and the mythos behind that, you'd almost be like, who is this ridiculous guy in a way? And funny enough, like, if you, like, anybody who's a fan of the comics, you would, 
you would see that as it goes on, like the Bruce Wayne character is pretty much the mask and Batman mm-hmm. is who he identifies himself with. And so Tim Burton, Tim Burton kind of recognizing that and running with that is, is, is really excellent way of portraying who Batman is for the audience. Yeah. Right. Uh, Michael Keaton had something really interesting to say about that when um, I, I, I listened to an interview that he gave back in, in 89. And, um, and actually he said this again um, when he was promoting the film Birdman. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said that um, that the key to to playing Batman is Bruce Wayne because you've got to keep up that that di- that dichotomy. Like Batman is his identity. That's that's you know who he sees himself as. But okay. you, Michael Keaton, made some choices in playing this character that that really creates that dichotomy mm-hmm. like uh, at certain points he's like a little aloof um uh a little um uh, a little clumsy like at the at the party scene when he's like trying to find a place <laughs> to put a pin he like stabs stabs it in a plant and alfred walks behind him and picks it up <laughs> right um, and he like sets a, a drink down and it was almost kind of jerry lewis-esque <laughs> you know um but like that's the antithesis of what Batman is, you know, this this uh, precise um, targeting individual, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, but um, but yeah. Well, even his like like you said, Adam, like one of the biggest character choices was that he made him so much more of a down to earth character than you would expect from Bruce Wayne. I remember I saw the um, I think most of the other Batman movies before I actually saw Batman and Batman Returns. So I was used to the Christian Bale or the Val Kilmer. I haven't seen the George Clooney version. I may, may or may not. Maybe we'll do an episode on this if on Batman or, and Robin. Or, maybe not. Or maybe we won't. Maybe we won't. <laughs> we, can, we can skip that. One. Um, so the the, Bat, the the Bruce Wayne I was used to was you know more of the quote the pretty boy face and all that. When I saw Michael Keaton, I'm like that just it's so different from the Bruce Wayne's we're used to. But then after thinking about it, it it's a good thing I think because he is you know the everybody in a way you know especially you know back then when he was a little bit younger you know with the you know, kind of curly hairish. You know, it's just like he could just be your next door neighbor in a way, and you know he's so unassuming as the Bruce Wayne Batman figure. And I think that's part of the the choices that um, Michael Keaton made were in a line with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And it's just I think the Michael Keaton Michael Keaton choice. Just going back on it, just shows like as the franchise continued going, you almost feel like Warner Brothers was just trying to keep up with it, just so that they can keep the keep the name of Batman so then they start pulling mm-hmm. in these larger faces right. it became more about what they could pull in at the box office rather than trying to convey a story as what they did with Tim Burton and the choices that they had now obviously like there were some bigger name characters that they inserted into the mm-hmm. Tim Burton stories like Billy D. Williams like you have you have an African American actor trying to play like a white traditionally white character mm-hmm. in the story but like that's not so much of, of a problem as it is with him basically coming off of you have these huge stars from Star Wars and just trying to basically put a name out there even though right. he had maybe five lines in the entire movie like he still gets billed as like one of the big actors in the movie right his character was very underused in, in the story and you know maybe that was the point to set up you know throughout to you know eventually, eventually be Two-Face which of course you know Tommy Lee Jones was cast in that role and I think Adam you were saying earlier that they got Billy D. Williams out of his contract somehow. It's kind yeah, of what, fuzzy. Yeah, what I had read online is that uh, Billy D. Williams was supposed to be Two-Face in either 
Batman Returns or what became Batman Forever. Mm-hmm. And when Tim Burton exited uh, for Batman Forever and Joel Schumacher came in, um, Joel Sh- Schumacher wanted to lighten things up. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely different between Batman Returns and Batman oh, yeah. Forever. The tone is completely different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so he chose to buy out the contract and then... Um, there were a few actors that they they considered, but ultimately went with Tommy Lee Jones, and that was just that's that's another conversation, right? But I mean, at the time, you know, he was fresh off The Fugitive, I believe. Yeah, and that I, was I think that this is big name choice, right after, right? And Jim Carrey was this right before or after Dumb and Dumber? Dumb and Dumber was his. Oh no no no! Uh, Ace Ventura was his big break. Then it was then Dumb and Dumber, Dumber. Then came right after that, and so then that way you have. You have a couple it, movies under his belt. I think he might have even done um, the second Ace Ventura, and then, or maybe somewhere in between, was, there's mixed around there. But like Jim Carrey is like, he's one of the big names. People have laughed a lot at him already at this point. So it's just like you have this character, the Riddler, just just put him in there. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, and he can at this point he can command a a pretty large payday, <laughs> right? Too so. And I think that's kind of, you know, from all the 90s Batman movies, it was, seemed almost to be more about the villains than Batman. I mean, they were obviously focused on Batman, but at the same time, the, the box office allure was, you know, the Riddler, Mr. Freeze, all these other, you know, flashy villains in a way, where then you look to the 2000 Batmans, um, and again, we all love, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker and all that, but the focus was more strongly on, you know, Batman. Yeah. And it's just interesting to see the differences between the different iterations of the franchise. Or even like with even the 2000s Batman focusing on maybe villains that may not necessarily, who were primary villains in the story of Batman that mm-hmm. maybe never had really come to surface. You know, Scarecrow. Um, yeah, Scarecrow, who's another large one, especially if you're fans of the animated series. Right, it's a huge um, character there. It's a huge character. You have Ra's al Ghul, again, with the animated series. Mm-hmm. is a huge character. And even Bane, going back to like the written comic book series, Bane is like one of Batman's most brilliant brilliantly crafted villains and mm-hmm. had a very difficult time with them like through the whole nightfall story arc which had happened in the early to mid 80s right and it stretched over years like that whole struggle with bane and his overtaking of gotham and it seems like they really dumbed him down for like the the movies but like mm-hmm. but you see christopher nolan focusing on other villains that are not anywhere really close to what happened in the 90s because I think he was just afraid to reboot everything that happened in those right. 90s films. You know? Exactly. And actually at the time, um, Jonathan Nolan, Christopher Nolan's brother, suggested Bane, and Christopher Nolan basically laughed in his face if the you know, the article I read you know, is, is accurate. You know, basically said, no, this is a ridiculous idea. You know, Bane, this bodybuilder. And his brother's like, no, no, like Bane is the antithesis of Batman, really. And, you know, it was... It was yeah. Like if you ever read anything, like when I started reading the source content and going back through comics, I started really reading Batman by going through Nightfall, mm-hmm. which is that whole story arc with when Bane is introduced, and he's a, he is a brilliant man who is extremely intelligent, who is a was cunning, and you see he just gets at Batman in every single way, mm-hmm. and the movie doesn't really quite do it justice, but it was really nice to see like. It's nice to see him at least try. Right, right. And Tom Hardy's always... He did the best he could with that, the mask and everything like that, and he's always a brilliant actor. It doesn't matter who we are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of villains, I'm interested to get both of your opinions. So, Jack Nicholson's take on the Joker, of course, when this Batman came out, it was kind of a hard act to follow because you have the brilliant Cesar Romano from... Romero. Romero, there you go. Romero. 
excuse me, um, from the 1960s Batman, um, who just growing up on the 60s Batman, he's just just the he is the you know the arch villain of that of that show. I mean, of course, you've got the Riddler, the Penguin, and Catwoman, the big four that he he fights in that show. But you know, the Joker is it. So you have Jack Nicholson following in the the trails of that, and then you have Heath Ledger on the other side of that. So taking into account both of what precedes Jack Nicholson and then comes after, what are what are your thoughts? Does he pull off the villain role? He he pulls it off, but I mean, I think I think with the, just this movie in general, it's kind of like this perfect midpoint between the '66 Batman and the Christopher Nolan. Uh, the Christopher Nolan movies, and so I think personally, I think that the 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 ultimate iteration of of the uh, the Joker is Heath Ledger. We'll see once this Joaquin Phoenix right. movie comes they out. Just started filming. Yeah, there's the the pictures that just came out. I don't know if you all I saw that, that this morning without without the makeup. Rest in peace, Jared Leto. <laughs> right, right. Um, it lasted for all of what two movies? One movie? I don't one, even know. One movie. I think oh, he, man. I think he, it was only 20 minutes of Suicide, Suicide Squad. Squad. Thank then, you so much, Jared Leto, for all your hard work. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think that Heath Ledger is just the, the ultimate iteration of, of uh, the, the Joker. And, of course, Mark Hamill has, has you know... He put like, a stamp on him. Oh, man. Yeah, he, he did a lot to, to yeah. really flesh that, that character out in the, the animated... Uh, series and in video games and stuff but as it pertains to Jack Nicholson um, you can you can definitely see that there you know of course there's pieces of of him in this that he's that he's brought into it um, but there's there's also some Cesar Romero in there um, I think the, the 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 part where it's most obvious is when they're on the the float for the was it the 200th anniversary yeah, of right yeah of gotham. gotham yeah mm-hmm. and he's he just straight up starts doing the the you know the the joker laugh that oh yeah caesar romero was um was famous for mm-hmm. but um but i mean i think that that's that's where the 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 homage right. to, to romero um stops um so he made some some really interesting choices, like in terms of the the makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that he was that he was very um, involved with, and he had to sign off on it before he would even sign his contract. Oh, to, I didn't to, know that to do the the film. So Tim Burton and the the makeup director mm-hmm. um, came up with like six different um, versions of what the Joker could look like, whittled it down to two, presented those to uh, Jack. Uh, Nicholson, and um, and and then he he chose from there and, and signed signed the, the contract, yeah. and so it's it's really weird. Mm-hmm. So he falls in this vat of chemicals, <laughs> comes out, and his skin is completely white. Has plastic surgery, which that was like one of the campiest parts of the movie for me. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> it's like this dingy. Dimly lit room. It's the and best you, that I could do. With these tools, yeah. <laughs> and you see surgery just scrawled on the wall. Yeah. And then and it's like this is the best I can do. And the camera pans over and it's like these rusty tools. Yeah. Which like bottle opener type things or yeah. wine corks. Which by the way are the tools that Steve Martin used in um his dental procedures 
in Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> just just a, a fun little fact there. But, I love it. But so he ends up with like this this weird face and um I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> I just this I so I think they he as far as the makeup goes, like from what I could gather, like I'm not I haven't watched a whole lot of the nineteen sixties Batman, but mm-hmm. he looks a lot like Caesar uh, Romero did. And mm-hmm. so I think as far as looks go, there was already an established Joker. Right. And so there's a lot of people, like true fans, would say that it, it's Caesar. Like, that's the look. And, like, mm-hmm. they would go off of, like, what they found in the comics and try to go back and forth. And for many, many years, there was just black and white, so you, there wasn't much you can go off of. So then, like, when things were actually being produced in color, like, what does the Joker look like in color? And um, And so as far as looks go... I think he does pull a lot of that, except for like the weird smile thing, like what Adam was mentioning. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it, but you have Jack Nicholson, who is this character, who is this actor at this point, who is already what won an Oscar for the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. and so you have this guy who can can make himself appear like he is way off like the, right. you know, the reservation, and so I think he was a good character choice for the Joker at that time. And he does it well. Like I think, I think like as far as creating this character from in the beginning of the movie, you have this guy who's just some basically thug, some like high level thug mm-hmm. in an organization, um, to then go on to this point where he is like this criminal mastermind. Although like the character of Jack Napier of who he was right. didn't really exist in the comics, and, they, and Tim Burton they kind of created that like mm-hmm. the origin, right? So the origin of the Joker was kind of created for this purpose, right? Um, Which was an homage to the guy that played Alfred in the '66 Batman series. Sorry, just to throw that in there. No, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> love the little trivia effects. So I mean, trivia's the um, best. Alan Napier, <laughs> Alan Napier, that's his name. That's that was the Alfred from the '60s. Yeah, interesting. So it's so I think so I think with that um, you know he he does he does well with really with 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 the the role itself right and um, honestly like when you listen to Mark Hamill in the animated series and for me personally like when I think of the Joker I think of him like he did the end he did the voice for all of the animated series mm-hmm. and then he also did the voices for the video games which were huge That's hits true. like yeah. Arkham Asylum. Um, Arkham Knight, like he came back and reprised his role as the Joker for those, and so a lot of people, especially with my generation, and I'm 30 years old, so we we hear the Joker. I hear Mark Hamill's laugh, mm-hmm. and so I think he, um, I think he he really did develop the character further, as like Adam had mentioned, than what than what Jack Nicholson could have done, or he's and, had such a body of work to to work in it, rather exactly, than two yeah. hours of a character that. And you have people who are able to carry that and be able to take it further, and then you have Heath Ledger, who is now able to because at that time, like if you wanted to make a movie that was PG or PG thirteen, you needed to be very careful with what you put in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like in the time that Heath Ledger and Christopher Nolan did The Dark Knight, like a PG thirteen movie can look very different than what it did in the late eighties, mm-hmm. and so. He was able to probably do a little bit more that would have been socially acceptable than would have been in the late eighties. Right, and so the character of the Joker became far darker, mm-hmm. far more, I guess, reach uh, reaching as far as the terror that this guy could actually in like inflict. And so, but if you read going through the comics, you see that like there is this guy who is constantly joking, but there's also this element to this character who is causing constant 
damage and and hurt upon people around him and i think to an extent all of the characters which they have chosen through the time mm-hmm. have been able to really develop that right they've all built upon each other mm-hmm. more than anything and like i said mark hamill definitely has the greatest body of work to build it on but then you do have you know keith ledger is able to do something completely different which honestly is one of my biggest gripes about jack nicholson's character not his performance but things performance like you both were saying was you know really really well done I think for me it was more on the writing side of it. You have, on one side of the spectrum, you have Heath Ledger, who we, we don't know his backstory, and I think that works really, really well for that story. Um, and then you've got, you know, the opposite side of the spectrum, which we really haven't seen too much of, you know, really fleshed out Joker origins. You know, not just, you know, how he got the face paint and all that, but who he is, you know, from, you know, psychologically. And for me, Jack Nicholson's character was somewhere in the middle that didn't quite work. It's almost like he was too unagenda driven to be a true threat to Batman. I think back to right at the midpoint of the movie where um, um, Vicki Vale's character says, basically, what what do you want? And he's like, I want my face in the $1 bill and all these other things. And it's he's just a psycho, ultimately. A, a dangerous psycho, for sure. But that almost dropped down for me his you know the dangerousness of him in this particular story because there wasn't so much stakes there. Heath Ledger does that, too. He says, I don't have a plan, but you know he does have a plan, or his plan is to not have a plan. Whereas Jack Nicholson's is just, I don't know what it is, in a way. Mm. Yeah, one thing that, that really stood out to me with this transformation from Jack Napier to the Joker is that while this guy is a psychopath, apparently he was a brilliant psychopath. <laughs> he really knew how to merchandise. Because <laughs> it's such an 80s movie. Like, so he falls in the vat of chemicals, and like two days later, he's got like... A whole fleet of of goons that are wearing leather jackets with a caricature of his face embroidered on it. More than that, he's got these this fleet of cars that are I think it's like purple with yeah. like green green tops. Um, and then when he was Jack Napier, he didn't really seem to you know be. Uh, be fond of gadgets or anything mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden he's got this hand buzzer that can light your face on fire <laughs> and then uh and then you know burn you to a to a crisp mm-hmm. so from from a logical standpoint that that just really stood out to to me as a a flaw in mm-hmm. the in the it's story much um because it's 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 a pretty big jump whereas with Heath Ledger um you, you don't really, you don't really have that, right? You know, but and make part a, of that is because we don't know his, his origin. They make a big point of saying in the Dark Knight, you know, all his clothing is custom, you know, just nothing was nothing in his pockets but knives and lint. I yeah, think. you just there's nothing traceable about him, and and like even in the the comic, like there's just like this this ambiguity about him, mm-hmm. and you really don't discover maybe anything about his origin until they do kind of like an Under the Red Hood, which is a graphic novel that basically revolves around a a former Robin of Batman who had died by the hands of the Joker, and they discover you know why this mm-hmm. Red Hood is this illuminated. And it goes back to this gentleman who this gang, the Red Hood gang, had kind of incorporated and just brought on all these and other basically innocent individuals and bribed them to do certain things. And then he fell into the vat of chemicals with the hood and then became this kind of insane person. Mm-hmm. But you don't really know, like, anything about, like, the origin of the Joker other than, like, what kind of created him 
to an extent. So like, there's always just this big open question mark in the comics. Like, who is the Joker and why has he become the way he is? But I think that's always what makes him so compelling as a Batman villain is because Batman, as a detective, your job is to discover what has happened and why the person has done what they've done. That's a great point because, you know, if the Joker was created today, it'd be left at, you know, the Joker, face paint, you know, no superpowers, you know, but he's, you know, he's the iconic villain yeah. of the, the Batman legend. And I think it's because of that, Dom, that, you know, he is this mysterious character that Batman just never quite figures out in a way, which makes him just such a, as much as you can make a villain endearing, endearing throughout, you know, whenever the, the Joker character was created back in, well, before we were born, let's we'll right. put it that way. And I know, like the the traditional like Batman character, like doesn't he doesn't kill anybody in in like the mm-hmm. comics? Like obviously, like the movies definitely take liberty there, but like, right. Um, but I think just as much like the the actual character of Batman needs the Joker just as much as the Joker may need Batman mm-hmm. in that like he cannot rest until he figures out these these un you know identifiable factors about him, and he will always work to put him in prison in hopes that he might eventually one day figure out exactly who he is but mm-hmm. i mean i think that's really going i think back towards like the comic and compelling right. the character forward which the flip flop of flip flop of that it's hard word to say flip flop of that is basically the plot of the lego batman movie ultimately just you know they need each other which yeah. was kind of hammered and on I, I too much, but that movie's so great it's hysterical um you know what i'll just throw in another piece of trivia here do it adam i i don't remember uh if this is the batman movie i think it is if not it's the the lego batman movie mm-hmm. billy d finally gets to he play two face i think it's the lego batman uh, yeah <laughs> so and that was justice after he for cameoed, billy d. after he cameoed as lando again in the lego movie for like a line that's or two. so that's so and, and now he's coming back for episode L- nine lando okay yeah yeah, yeah. so there, there i didn't know that that's an interesting yeah time. yeah so that blew my mind yeah lando calrissian is gonna be in star wars episode bring nine. back a guy that's <laughs> but is he gonna live i don't know <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. i mean you know with with the way things are going you never know Right, which the cast of Star Wars Episode Nine, which is a total tangent now, he's, you know, they brought in three interesting new char- new actors: Dominic Monaghan from Lord of the Rings and Lost, Matt Smith from um, Doctor Who, Doctor Who, yeah. and The Crown, and Carrie Russell from what was she in? Like Felicity, the, yeah, Felicity and the yeah. Americans. Yeah, so brand new characters, so pretty big names. Yeah, I'm, Matt, I'm, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, so I love Matt Smith. So yeah, it's. it's going to be interesting to see yeah. how they, they wrap up this the Skywalker saga, as they're saying, but, for this. So, anyway, side tangent. Thank you, Billy <laughs> D. Williams, for letting us span all sorts of movies in this podcast. <laughs> um, so, question I want to pose to both of you, and I'll get a little bit of a background first. Because typically, in, a, in a, a good story, not all stories have to do this exactly, you know, you, your plot follows the desire line of the protagonist. You know, you think Lord of the Rings, it's Frodo's desire is to save the Shire. His goal is to do that by, you know, destroying the ring. You know, in Star Wars Episode Four, Luke Skywalker wants to, you know, fight the Emperor, you know, you know, and the Emperor and the Empire, you know, find freedom. He does that by joining forces, you know, with Han Solo, Rebel Alliance, yada, yada, yada. In this movie, and again, I've only seen it a few times, saw it again last night, you've got the Bruce Wayne character who is Batman, shows up 20 minutes in, and I know he does have a, a desire line throughout the, the movie, which, you know, keep Gotham safe, you know, um, avenge his parents' murder, things like that. But do you guys think that 
his desire line, whatever it may be, and we can discuss that in a second, is strong enough to make him the overall protagonist, or is Batman the plot? Because you have all these other characters, like the Vicky Vale trying to figure out who Batman is. You got Jack Nicholson, who has, you know, he's more of an actionary character than Batman, who's more reactionary in this yeah. story. And just, you know, posing the question, what, what do you guys think? I mean, I thought about that a lot, actually, as I was kind of rewatching it, and the fact that when you take a look at movies and you try to think of, like, just thinking of, like, the Oscars and the mm-hmm. award shows and the things that they do is, like, the with best actor or best supporting actor and things. And for, for, for a, you know, you know, for a male to win best actor, um, you would have to, you would have to think that they would spend a significant amount of time on screen in order to basically win up over somebody else. And you don't get the feeling that Michael Keaton dominates the, the, the actual screen. Right. Time. And so I, I believe that, it was more of the idea of maybe Tim Burton kind of introducing the character of Batman as like a plot to kind of basically solve the problems that he has created through the, the protagonist. Because I mean, you almost get the, the feeling that, that Jack Nicholson spends just as much, if not more, time on right. screen than Michael Keaton. And then splitting the time with, you know, the Vicky Vale character and the love story that comes with that, trying to figure that out. So it's almost like... The Batman is just a device to help the movie move along, rather than like it is a Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bruce makes Batman, and Bruce is a, a much smaller portion of this this movie mm-hmm. um, than than other portrayals. Um, but even though he's not on screen as 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 much, mm-hmm. he's definitely just important as a as important of a part. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it could be a little bit of a misnomer there. We go in you know, as an audience to see, you know, you know, Batman, the, the title Batman. Are we there to see? We're not, we're not going to see Bruce the movie. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's like Lord of the Rings, you know. We're going to see a 10-hour movie on Sauron. Well, not really. He's the one of the overarching plot points in mm-hmm. a way. and But he's not, you know, the focus on this. And I think it is more of, like, kind of what you guys said, the, the legend of it all. Which you know definitely then is capitalized a lot in, in the sequels for better or for worse. Sure. Uh, but one line in particular along that those lines, no pun intended, that stuck out was near ish the end, maybe three quarters of the way through. Vicky Vale uh, tells Bruce, "You won't let me in," and I almost feel like for, as an audience, that's what we get with a little bit of this movie. It's like we're trying to find out who Bruce is, and we know the backstory. We know his parents were killed and all that, but it's almost like he won't let us in in a way, and that might be a good thing. Um, that. After you. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. Um, that's that's definitely one thing that stood out to me in the course of watching this movie. It's the the question of as a storyteller, what are you going to reveal, mm-hmm. and what are you going to withhold? Exactly. Now, of course, we know, you know, all of the the the, the backstory of, of mm-hmm. Batman, and you know, even if you've never read any of the comics, that's been fleshed out in. You know the the movies, animated shows, all all that stuff, but um, at at this point in '89, mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't have all of that that information, right. and so we get little little pieces of it. But in one of the interviews that I listened to with Michael Keaton, he said that uh, that he's he wanted to to withhold some mm-hmm. of this information just because like. Just how Jack Napier is messed up, and he's the the, the Joker. There's something right. going on with Bruce Wayne, and he's just as messed up. Mm-hmm. So there are things that happen throughout the movie that 
that just aren't explained. Mm-hmm. Like at one point, we seem sleeping upside down, <laughs> like a like, like a, a bat. bat. Why is he? Why is he doing that? Why does he have this obsession with with bats? That's not explained, right? Right. No, yeah. it's not explained in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we we just think want to make sure we think of you know, Batman Begins and all those other things. We just it's a mesh in it, our minds. It, but it, yeah, it blurs together. Like you said at the time, we didn't know much. And I think it's an interesting question. Like you know, do as an audience, are we are we brought in? Like do like are we let in? And, mm-hmm. and to an extent, no. But I but. Much to what Adam was saying, I think that's the purpose of what Tim Burton and certainly Michael Keaton were trying to portray. Mm-hmm. Like when you think about the character of Batman, like Batman is who he is, and Bruce Wayne is his alter identity. And right. He doesn't let anybody in. Like he doesn't even know himself for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like like you would even say in, in in another realm, this person has a mental illness, and so that that he is is having trouble letting anybody in because he doesn't really know himself, and so by I think by not letting anybody in, it's intentional, and by leaving certain things, certainly I guess like ambiguous, mm-hmm. um, you, you're left to wonder what is still out there. But that might even be because the the actor or the character themselves still don't really know them that like what is going on, and I think that can add another element to a character and how they are developed if they're still searching. Um, like obviously with with how Michael Keaton portrays his Batman mm-hmm. character, he, he still doesn't know how to act really around people. It seems like he's been like sheltered and kind of, you know, reclusive. And he doesn't really know how to really go about still being Bruce Wayne and Batman at the same time. Like this is still all very new for him. And right. I think by leaving a lot of those things out, it's it gets across that kind of like extra feeling or that that sentiment that is really trying to be portrayed and that there's still a lot that you just don't know about, you know. And all of that, in my opinion, adds up to what makes a truly great story. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, that keeps you asking questions. Exactly. So you can't you can't just take everything and just lay all your cards out on the table. Because that's just bad storytelling. What is there to move forward with? Mm-hmm. But with with this, even though why Bruce is sleeping upside down like like a bat isn't explained in this movie and really wasn't explained until what over a decade later in in mm. some way just just go with me on that <laughs> <laughs> um but even though the like that in particular isn't resolved like you've got a lot of questions why is he sleeping upside down why is he so awkward around people you know all of all of these things are are floating around and that leads into what helped to make batman returns so so successful right. it's it's mysterious it's batman it should be mysterious you keep asking questions i think jj abrams is famous for saying this you know through his development of lost is like you want to get the audience thinking and then ask another question right before you answer the next one. And then keep doing that and keep doing that so it keeps them hooked in the way. Yeah. Well, the sequel yeah. wasn't really... The, the sequel wasn't set up at the conclusion of the first movie. You didn't yeah, know not a, at all. You didn't know a sequel was coming. So they left a lot of things ambiguous so that the sequel... It wasn't necessary to continue the plot from the first movie. Mm-hmm. It was basically just to add to, which I think eventually makes... Um, you know, Batman Returns probably one of the greatest Batman movies that were actually created. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think a lot of Batman fans really do love that movie because it, it it continues the the portrayal of Michael Keaton as Batman and really kind of 
I, I think at that point you have Tim Burton, who is really kind of come into his element as directing this movie. Right. And you also have other elements like Danny Elfman basically creating the music that would be identified as the theme for Batman for the next seven, eight years. Right, for a between, long time. Between the two movies that he did and then also the theme for the animated Batman series just mm -hmm. continues on. And so basically you have created who Batman is for an entire generation. Right, and he, even after you, Adam. He's uh, DC's John Williams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. because he did. He just did that. He did the Justice League soundtracks as well. So that's right. And so Danny Elfman is still yeah. sticking around with yeah. DC. You know, <laughs> like him and, him and Hans Zimmer like throw Batman back and yeah, forth. De decades later. <laughs> yeah. He's like, okay, you got other Christopher Nolan Batman's, but let me take everything else. Well, know? and people say that you know sequels are really hard to do, and for you know for the most part that that's true. There's a lot of really bad sequels, but in a way. There are some franchises where the sequels are the best entries. You know, Empire Strikes Back, Toy Story Two, The Two Towers. You know, any of these stories. And it, sequels are hard because you're trying to think of you know an original story that you know still capitalizes on the main characters, but doesn't seem like it's totally out of left field. But at the same time, from a filmmaking and storytelling writing perspective, it can be such a joy because you can take a deep breath and say, okay, I figured out who these characters are. Now we're really going to delve into them and figure out the meat of it all. Now the audience has bought into it all. Mm -hmm. And I think, Dom, that's kind of what you were alluding to with Batman Returns with uh, Tim Burton. He knows the world now. He knows the characters. Michael Keaton knows the character. Now they can really have some more, you know, fun. Not just for the sake of having fun, but, you know, fun from a storytelling psychological perspective. Right, and I, th I think it's the same really with any story. And I think of, like, Probably one of my favorite sequels of any movie of all time probably is the Two Towers because mm -hmm. like, you have the Fellowship of the Ring and you really you're you're basically given an introduction to the nine people who are part of the Fellowship. Right. And then in the Two Towers, you have basically you go forward and you learn more about the eight who continue the journey, mm -hmm. and then the more they get added to it, and it just really develops the characters of those who are also in it. And that's really what a sequel should be. Like mm -hmm. um, like a sequel shouldn't be. A continuation of the original story like it, it people i think get in this rut of like who are trying to make sequels they see dollar signs and they see the potential right. to make franchises and rather than creating career like completely original stories mm -hmm. that basically just continue characters that would have been just fine if you left it and just moved one movie you right know? right and now some of those like obviously like the lord of the rings is a, is a three-part trilogy that i mean it it required all three movies, but mm -hmm. I mean, if you take a look at Star Wars itself, it didn't have to be three movies. It right. could have been one, and it could have been satisfactory, and people, fans would have loved it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's really kind of what may mark like a, tr a truly great series is a, a first movie that would have been great by itself, mm -hmm. and then continuing on in that fashion within the next movie. Right, and all good sequels take what the original characters have and just delves deeper. It doesn't really add to them or subtract from them, but it says what else is there to explore? You know, think of like Woody and the Toy Story franchise. The things he deals with in Toy Story 2, the ego and all that, the roots of that are in Toy Story. You just see a different iteration of it in the next movie. It's not something brand new, like where did this come from? The seeds are there, the foundation's there. Now what happens when you put them in this other scenario? Um, and one of the things I think why the two towers work so well because I agree with you Dom it's my favorite Lord of the Rings as well is that it doesn't have to worry about a beginning and it doesn't have to worry about an end it can just focus on character and of course there's you know an epic plot line there that keeps the story moving for right. almost four hours if you watch the extended editions right um, but we just have time to figure out who these characters are yeah yeah it's definitely my favorite which is you know Dark Knight yeah. arguably the best of the, the right. Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy yeah absolutely so um, 
want to take on a little bit of a, a side tangent. It's still in the Batman world, but the opening title sequence of this this movie, of course, you've got the brilliant, brilliant uh, Danny Elfman theme, which is the best Batman theme of them all. Probably. I would agree. Yeah, I would agree, yeah. It just, even after what, the movie came out, 89, and it's 2018 now, it's almost 30 years later, mm-hmm. it's still, you know, we listened, we watched it last night, me and uh, Kristen did, you know, I was humming it all day at work today. Just, <laughs> it's a good theme that... Yeah, it's just something like you hear it, you're like, man, that's Batman. I mean, where is uh, just here in the background? Right. So the question I want to pose, a great opening music... But what are your guys' thoughts on opening title sequences that are just, you know... Drawn out. Drawn out. It goes on for about five minutes. This letter's over. We don't even really know that it's the Bat logo until the very end of it. Do you think that works or not in this movie? Or in movies as a whole? To have a, a drawn-out credit sequence? The opening credit sequence. That, you know, and, and not really necessarily the James Bond. Like, I think of Casino Royale, where it tells a little bit of the story as, you know, kind of a... Um, a continuation of that the opening scene where he you know sure. has his first kill mm-hmm. but just where it's just words you yeah. know text on whether it's background scenery something that's not really character specific sure. god here's here's an obscure reference for you mm-hmm. um i think this was from 2003 a civil war movie gods and generals yes that had i it's been a long time since i've seen it but i just remember that being an obscenely long mm-hmm. opening credit it's credit very sequence. long um, I mean, the movie itself is is very, very long. long. Is it like three and a half, four hours, something like so that? So Ron it's, Maxwell's original cut was seven hours long. That's right. We've spoken about this before. Um, not on air, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Tune in next time for your seven-hour Gods and Generals podcast episode. <laughs> there, yeah, there we go. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a long movie anyway. It's the only... No, I take that back. It's one of two movies that I've seen in theaters that actually has an intermission. Mm-hmm. The other was um, a special showing of Gone with the Wind. Okay, um, but um, but yeah, it's the the only first run movie that mm-hmm. I've that I've seen uh, with an intermission. Uh, of course, that's not that's not terribly uh, popular these these <laughs> days with box office receipts and whatnot. Very but, true. But uh, but yeah, that that has a uh, an incredibly long opening title sequence and it just i don't know i don't i'm i'm not a fan Mm -hmm. i don't really have anything else to add to that except i don't like it (laughs) right i'm like a huge fan of james bond movies so like long title sequences but traditionally with james bond films you always get some type of introductory scene before they jump into the title sequence right um and i i think for this i think it works because of the fact that we have to think back to 89. You have mm-hmm. a large generation of people who already know who Batman is because they remember the, the 1960s TV show. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially like, and we've had this conversation many, many times, like music is a passion of mine. Like yeah. the, the score the score of a movie is almost as important as the director or the actors that you put into Absolutely. it. And so, and, and, and unfortunately, like, the, the the way the music kind of plays into things really can stir emotions and, and mm-hmm. drive a story further than it was originally intended to go or sometimes like propel it yes yeah, so propel it further than maybe somebody had intended and you think of what Star Wars Episode 4 would have been without the score right it would not and have been so the most it, successful movie your second it, most successful movie of all time and even with Star Wars like the, the opening sequence wasn't as long but it starts with a scroll of just words that mm-hmm. you like 
okay, just get to the actual movie. But it, the theme that starts, like it's the Star Wars theme, the fanfare, the trumpets, you hear it. It's part you, of the experience. You ex- instantly know, like, okay, this is Star Wars. And I think to an extent, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman were trying to portray that. Like you now, you're, you're creating a Batman character for people who have already in their minds, whether they've seen the TV show or whether they've read the comics, they've already in their minds created who this Batman character is. And now you have to do a visual presentation for them Mm -hmm. of what you have interpreted that character as. Right. And, and I think the title sequence and the music does a really good job kind of setting that up and the tempo of the music, the, like everything to it, it, it's a little, it's, it's dark. It's it's kind of it's fast paced, but then all of a sudden it slows down a little bit, and mm-hmm. so it's just it has little elements of every little bit kind of in it, and so I mean I, I think I probably geek out over music <laughs> more than most people, but yeah, and just to to piggyback on that, the in this instance at least with the preconceptions yes, of, yes. of of and what then, of what Batman is, I mean right. Michael Keaton is not doing the Batusi. He's not. He's, he's not wearing he, the bat nipple suit. You know, he's just. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's not. Uh, he's not wearing swim trunks over his 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 outfit and um, and surfing with with the the Joker. Like or people his, uh, have this preconception of shark repellent uh, bat spray in his back pocket. Right, right, yeah. right. Just happens to to have that there. Um, so they have this this preconception, and and Danny Elfman just did this amazing job, like right out of the gate in that opening title sequence of creating that that dark feel like this is what batman is now Mm -hmm. you know and kind of shifting your your mind i think that kind of goes along with with what you're with what you're saying well Um, it works so well for for the time of of the 80s you know if you if you had that particular score for a batman movie now and pretend there wasn't any batman movies it would seem campy ish but at the time, coming from that that cheese of the '60s to the '80s, which were kind of weird overall, it was very orchestral and majestic. Which was saying this, like you were saying, Dom, this is a new version of Batman. Sure. In the same way that you know, when Christopher Nolan you know took over the franchise almost 20 years later, there is no opening sequence at all. It doesn't even say Batman it begins at the beginning. Dark Knight at the beginning. It just you starts out with that, you know, that kind of fog and fire. I think there were bats at the beginning of the first one, and then it just opens. And you could sit in the theater and be like, am I in the right movie here? Yeah. The title doesn't come up to the very, very end. So it just kind of shows the difference in you know, the, the styles of those two franchises it and just where seems, they were. It seems to be like a trend of the 80s in general because, and like I had mentioned before, like I'm a huge fan of the James Bond films. It's mm-hmm. something like I've watched with my dad and my uncle for a very, very long time. And you have Sean Connery and Roger Moore who identified, minus like George Lazenby for one (laughs) one movie, but like you have those two guys who've characterized who James Bond is from the 60s all the way up to the 80s. Right. And then you have Timothy Dalton do two films in the 80s, and they were probably two of the darkest, like Mm. especially License to Kill, like where it's, you have one of these, you know, one of these films that, that takes place kind of, revolving a cartel in, in this you know central american country and it's very dark and they show very like 
brutal murders and Benicio del Toro is very young in his career and makes his entry and then you see him kind of continue on in a similar fashion in movies like Sicario mm-hmm. and but like it channels a lot of that and in the 80s did that in films like they right. showed a lot of very dark things because it as a society it started shifting away from like the campy happy feeling movies and then into like more darker real feel like real movies and you mm-hmm. can you get the sense that from the very beginning of the Batman film that Danny Elfman's trying to do that and and I would agree like I really don't like long title sequences to begin with because it's just it's rather annoying. Like mm-hmm. you're a fan, you just want to watch a movie, and it's just like get these words out of the way. But. And just to just to circle back, <laughs> I, did, I did look it up. God, yeah, Gods and Generals opening title sequence, um, five minutes and ten seconds long. Yeah, that's excessive. And I kind of scrolled through it on mm-hmm. on mute on uh, YouTube. And it's just like scrolling pictures. Yeah, it's the flags, right? Yeah, of the different yeah, states yeah, or flags and uh, flags and paintings and which stuff. which is a cool idea. It really is. You're like setting the setting the mood and stuff. And but just, my just my biggest you know I guess gripe overall is that a film has to earn the right to do that in a way. You know, I think of another good example of something that works is like Spider Man Two. You know, you have you know the opening titles with you know directed by so and so Sam Raimi and this and that. And the first one but, was great. Like the first, everybody loved this first Tobey Maguire movie. Right. So it's just like it almost earned the fact that it was like a longer title sequence. And because it showed the recap of Spider Man One throughout it. So if you know you forgot what happened in Spider Man Two, you're just coming now into the franchise. You know, a friend brought you to the theater in 2004. It's like okay, I get a little bit of what the story is or I'm, I'm remembering now right. and that's a movie that earns the right to do that my gripe is with stories that just you know we're going to have some you know cool panning shots here and hey you know directed by and production design here and just takes you out of the movie and you're saying when is this thing going to ever start mm-hmm. so you have to earn the right to do that I think right and from from what I, I heard um, that's Avengers 4 is going to do a recap of all uh, what is, is it, it really? 19 movies something like that um, it's going to it's going to be a three hour uh, I hope opening they, really, <laughs> they really need to focus on Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton Edward Norton or Eric Bana well the Eric Bana is kind of like out of the whole <laughs> can that, that was that was pre um, Marvel Multiverse or right, Cinematic yeah, Universe so it's like oh this one doesn't exist really so sorry Eric Bana yeah maybe that's the, Thanos just keeps pressing the Infinity Stone and another <laughs> Bruce Banner pops out see what happens <laughs> what are those oh, this is not the Bruce you're looking for <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh well because we are getting towards the, the length of half of a movie. So he basically could have watched the whole Batman movie, or half of it, with the length of this episode. Yeah. So um, anything else that you guys want to add about the story or things you liked, didn't like before we wrap this one up? I I, I thought it was I thought it was a, a fun movie. I thought it was really good. Like, basically, you start, like if you're starting in the Batman realm, like, it's a really good starting point. Too many people in our generation just focus on, like, the actual... Like the explosions, the Michael Bay's, like mm-hmm. you know, the ones that just add the special effects, and like Christopher Nolan incorporates some of that, but also is is really good with the storytelling. But like people have identified Christian Bale as Batman, mm-hmm. and I think to overlook Michael Keaton as Batman would be would be a travesty. It's a I shame. Think he does a really really good job. Right, and the, I mean, it's not a cinematic masterpiece. There's no you know, no, it's not. If, but, from a, especially from a cinematography perspective, it's nothing. Special, no offense to the cinematographer who did it, you know, he did better than any of us could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a product of the 80s. But we're not going to see a work of art. We're going to see, you know, Batman. Yeah. You know, the there's legend. A, there's a reason why this story has existed and continued 
all the way up till now is because of the fact that it's the storytelling right. itself is 80 years at this point something like that right yeah. yeah and in its own way it is i mean it definitely is a, a work of art because it's it's a tim burton film regardless <laughs> of of what happens in in the movie mm-hmm. you can look at a movie and know that's a tim burton film right These you know whether it's this or beetlejuice or edward scissorhands or nightmare before christmas um, the weird Alice so, in Wonderland, even Big yeah. Fish. You know, it's yeah. just like you, you take a look at just the elements that you have in the story, and you're like, man, this seems different, and it's different because it's Tim Burton, and it's and they have very similar <clears throat> veins throughout mm-hmm. all the movies. And right. one thing that he does incredibly well um, is that he he does. I mean, what one of the 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 ultimate goals of cinema is, and that's to to take you away for a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is not you know just new york city like, right this is like his vision of of uh of gotham and so despite the 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 flaws in the story that we've we've mentioned or the you know the, the strengths um it's it's really cool to just sit down watch it and be like swept up into this this you know um notion of 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 what batman and the Joker and mm-hmm. you know Gotham are. It really is an alternate universe in a way. It looks just enough like our our world, but it is you know stylized as only the eighties can do. But it sets it apart. We're entering a new world, just to you know, like you're saying, Adam, to have some some fun for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Christopher Nolan couldn't do that because you take a look at his films and he very much so. You take a look at that and it's like, man, he filmed this in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Whereas you take a look at Tim Burton and it's just he did such a good job that like. Well, you feel like it looks kind of like New York City, like which is the intention of you know what Gotham is. Gotham and Metropolis are two mm-hmm. sides of the same city. Like right. they're the dark side. Gotham being the dark side of what New York City could potentially hold, and then Metropolis being the the best parts of that same city. And that's mm-hmm. why like you have those two intertwining so much. But uh, like I think Tim Burton does such a really good job portraying the dark side of what gotham really could be and you never feel like it is just new york city right so when we're talking about tim burton versus christopher nolan's portrayal would you say like realistic fantasy versus like maybe ultra realism would that be a, a good way to i think so because i think christopher nolan's whole point with his movies and i think the reason why it did look like chicago or right. you know pittsburgh and dark knight rises or whatever the case may be is he wanted to say everything in this movie could happen but I think the beauty about being a comic book character is the fact that that there is that possibility that like there's no way it could possibly happen. Exactly. And I think by taking that magic away from a comic book character, you do it in an injustice. Mm-hmm. So by trying to make it too real sometimes, and, and there's just so many comic book movies now that they fall into that vein. Like, let a comic book character be a comic book character. Like, Mm -hmm. it can be ridiculous. It can be ludicrous. Like, Captain America can be this ridiculously altruistic American God-fearing individual because that's who he was. That's who he was. In the comic. Like, just let him be who he was. And... And and, and that, in that same sense, just let Batman be Batman. Like, mm-hmm. and I think Tim Burton does a pretty good job of trying to capture that very thing. Let the boy sleep upside down if that's what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and in every good story, kind of just kind of wrap this up a little bit. Is you know you want those characters to have those 
strong desires that they just pursue with with passion and you know they that can be you know a crazy comic book you know character um as long as you know, we're following this this plot and we were emotionally attached to this character and his goals and objectives and he has good conflict there to you know try to be, beat him back from what he wants in a satisfying resolution whether you know that's a tragedy or not you know, that's what we're looking for i think ultimately um and again maybe that is the beauty for why there's so many versions of <laughs> spider-man or batman or whatever we can see all the different you know scenarios all the different types of stylizations or, or lack thereof maybe um but I, you know i think you know we, we we would have missed out on something special if we hadn't had Michael Keaton and Tim Burton do do a version of it. Right. It might not have done as well in the box office, you know, in the two thousand late two thousand tens as it would have in the nineteen eighties. I think it was the highest grossing film in nineteen eighty nine. I think. Um it was second behind Indiana Jones. In the, the last, last crusade. crusade. So there you go. Indiana yeah. Jones and Michael Keaton head to head in nineteen nineteen eighty nine. Eighty nine it was a good year. It was a good year. <laughs> <laughs> Which Tim Burton, he's directing the live action Dumbo. That that trailer looks. Awesome. I didn't know there was a trailer. Stay oh yeah, everybody. <laughs> we'll, we'll come at you once it once it airs. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so anyway, I hope that um, you all listening just got a little bit of insight into um, just the world of storytelling via um, not the original Batman, but for for many people the original Batman, Michael Keaton, um, directed wonderfully by by Tim Burton. Um, so again, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of the Seeking Stories podcast. If you'd like for us to do Batman Returns next or any other ideas, uh, feel free to visit SeekingStories.com and comment on the website, and we will heartily consider your request. Uh, so again, thank you for listening, and hope you have a great day.